Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 18. I'm going to kick off today a uh, mini-series through the Easter season called, as you saw in the video, Finding You in the Resurrection. And uh, what we're going to do is look at four different people that we meet both in and around the crucifixion, uh, events leading up to the crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we look through uh, the lives of these individuals, I want us to kind of have two things in mind. One is I want us to ask ourselves, how are we like? I mean, how are we similar to, how can we identify with these people that we meet uh, and encounter uh, in, in this situation that Jesus is experiencing? And secondly, as we look at their lives, I want to ask, how was their life? And subsequently, how can our lives be impacted by their encounter with Jesus and ultimately by his resurrection. So we're going to answer those two questions in these next couple of weeks. And we're going to kick off our study this morning with uh, one of the bad boys of the Bible, if you will, uh, by looking at the life of Barabbas. Uh, On your sermon note sheet, you will see all of the passages in the Bible that reference Barabbas in some way. And probably the thing that jumps out at you is the fact that it's a short list. It doesn't look like there are a lot of verses that tell us a whole lot about Barabbas. And you are right in that assessment. There aren't a lot of verses that speak about Barabbas. In addition to that, uh, oftentimes we can look back at historical documents, secular history, and secular authors, and sometimes they'll give us information about people and events and things that were taking place at about the same time of Jesus' life and ministry. But honestly, secular historians don't tell us anything else about Barabbas outside of what we see in Scripture. Oftentimes, their references about Barabbas point back to what we see through Scripture. So basically, what little we do know about Barabbas comes from the Bible. But after his pardon before Pilate that we'll see today, he basically just disappears. We, just, we don't know what happened to him after that. With that in mind, you need to always remember, because people will write and they'll speak and they'll say a lot of things about Barabbas, remember that anything uh, that you hear about him and what happened after his encounter with Jesus is pure speculation, because we just don't know. There's no record, no history of what happened after his encounter with Christ. There have been books written about him and many articles and movies made and all those things. That they're just fiction. People making up and saying that we think this is what happened or this would be an idea. And there's some good stuff. I mean, it's not bad to think in that way. But just understand those aren't rooted in Scripture, uh, nor are they rooted in history. But here is one thing that we do know about Barabbas for sure. He was guilty. He was guilty. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He was guilty of the crimes with which he was charged. And you know what? We, we know what it's like to be guilty, don't we? I mean, all of us at some point in our lives, in our journeys, we have experienced and felt guilt. Now, to be fair, guilt varies in degree from person to person. You know how guilty they feel about certain things. But we're all familiar with this idea of feeling guilt, uh, remorse, or shame over our actions, particularly our wrong actions and deeds. That is, unless you're a psychopath, and let's hope that there are none of those you know, here this morning. But we've experienced you know, guilt over our actions. 
And I think I've shared this before, and it probably wouldn't surprise you about me, but our family loves to watch America's Funniest Videos. And it is probably not godly to laugh at people's pain and foibles and stupidity, uh, but we do it nonetheless. You know, sometimes we pop popcorn and gather all around the television and watch, and we'll even rewind it and watch it over again, you know, in, in some instances. You know, we, we've done that before. But a couple of weeks ago, we were watching an episode, and there was a young lady who was coming out of dental anesthesia. And, and you probably know that, that anesthesia affects people in different ways. I mean, the stories are told of people that come out violently, you know, swinging at people, and others are just laughing hysterically, and a lot of different things. Well, this young lady's encounter in particular was the fact that uh, what happened was she was feeling some guilt uh, over so, something that she had done uh, in her relationship with her mother. And so she was coming out of anesthesia. They caught on video uh, her, her expressing her remorse and her, her guilt over what had happened with her mother. And then from there, she just kind of got on a roll. And rather than me tell you about that, because I would not do it justice, I got this clip that I want you to see this young lady coming uh, out of anesthesia. I want you to see for herself her guilt and then the role that she got on after that. So you guys go ahead and roll this. She did win $10,000 in her episode, so, so for all that, that pain and humiliation, at least she got something out of it. Uh, so, you know, her, her guilt came out in that way. She felt bad over taking her mom's shirt and pretty much everything else, and she put it out there. And uh, we, we, we laugh, you know, we chuckle at that, but, you know, guilt isn't always funny, is it? You know, we, we've, uh, we've hurt our spouse, or we have hurt our children accidentally, unintentionally, or at times, uh, I wouldn't put it past us to have intentionally inflicted some kind of uh, pain and trauma on those individuals. I mean, we, we've experienced that guilt, and it's no laughing matter when it occurs then. You know, we've been guilty of officially breaking the law. You know, have we not? Maybe you paid a ticket. Maybe you had a, just a fine or, or community service. Maybe you served some time, you know, with that. Uh, and I say officially breaking the law because that means you got caught. But between you, me, God, and the pew back in front of you, we've all broken the law in some way. Uh, in many instances, we didn't get caught, right? So, so we've all been guilty. We've had that experience of guilt. And I won't take the time this morning to go through the whole list of things that we may be guilty of. You know, lying and slander and uh, you know, anger and bitterness and resentment, prejudice that we carry in our lives. I mean, there's a huge long list of things which we may be guilty of, some things that people could see and observe, but many, many things that no one would ever know, the guilt that we feel and we experience in our lives. Guilt is a common experience for us as human beings, 
and Barabbas was guilty. And as we find this encounter with him in John chapter 18, what's taking place is that Pilate is questioning Jesus to see what quote-unquote crime Jesus was guilty of because the religious leaders brought Jesus to him and wanted him charged as a criminal. Uh, They said he's guilty of something. And so Pilate basically asked what their accusation was. And if you look in verse uh, 29, that's what he says. What accusation do you bring against this man? In verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So you look at that and you go, I still miss the crime. I still miss the accusation of wrongdoing. I mean, them saying, well, he did something or we wouldn't have brought him to you. That still doesn't tell me what it is that he did. I mean, did you notice that? There's still no crime, no accusation being brought against Jesus. Well, their next response highlights what they wanted to have happen, but what they knew they couldn't do legally, which is why they were trying to get Pilate to do their dirty work. Verse 31, Pilate said to them when they didn't have an accusation, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They wanted Jesus to die. But they were saying, we can't find anything in our law, any reason for us to execute him. And we're bringing him to you because we're going to make a case. We're going to argue that he's broken Roman law, but we can't execute him for breaking Roman law. But that's what they wanted to do. You see, their law did have offenses by which they could execute someone. You know, the law clearly stated for certain infractions, a person could be put to death and there are violations of law before God. On a couple of occasions, if you remember through John's gospel, Jesus did things and these Pharisees, these religious leaders picked up stones to stone and to kill and to execute Jesus for what they thought in their mind was the wrong or the crime that Jesus had committed. Yet Jesus always was able to to move away and never allow them to execute him. But they knew they couldn't find anything punishable in their law, so they bring him to Pilate to say, we want to find something in the Roman law which will allow you to execute him for us. And so Pilate questions Jesus, but he found that he had committed no crime, according to Roman law, much less a crime deserving of death. And so Pilate wanted to let him go. He wanted to release him, but the religious leaders began to put political pressure on on Pilate to not release Jesus. And I want you to see the rationale they used uh, to get Pilate to do what they wanted him to do. This is how they manipulated Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 12 says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. So he wanted to let him go. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You see, ancient kings were all very jealous and were all very nervous. And do you know why that is? Because somebody was generally always looking to kill them. 
I mean, their life was always in danger because generally a family member, whether it be a son or a sibling, uh, somebody wanted to kill them and take over being king and ruler. That's why kings had cupbearers. You remember the role of cupbearers for them in their court? They would drink the, the wine or they would drink what the king was going to drink. They would eat some of the food. The king would have them eat and drink and then watch them for, oh, say, half hour, 45 minutes to make sure they didn't keel over. Because poisoning was a very common route for, kill, for killing the king. And so they, they did all these things to insulate and protect themselves because somebody was always out to get them. I mean, you remember the line, uh, et tu brute, meaning you too, Brutus. You know, you thought you were my pal, my friend, we went through all, and you stabbed me in the back. You are the one who kills me. Kings were always nervous that someone was trying to rise up and take over their power. So here's how this worked if you were the king. The king obviously couldn't be in every city throughout his empire, so he had governors, people that ruled in his stead in the different cities and the regions which he controlled. And if there was a governor who who allowed an uprising, a revolt, or a rebellion against him and his nation uh, as the king, generally the king would kill that governor and put another one in his place who would rule, who would keep the people under his thumb, under his iron fist, keep them in control. And so the religious leaders come to Pilate, and their thing is basically saying to him, this Jesus claims to be a king. If you set him free, he could, he might start an uprising against Caesar. So Pilate, if you don't have him killed, we will let Caesar know that you set free a man who might start an insurrection, an uprising, a revolt against him. I want you to let that settle in your minds for just a moment, because I'm going to come back to this here shortly. They said to him, don't set free a man who might cause a revolution. If you do, we will tell Caesar that you set a revolutionary free. Now, let's go back to John chapter 18, verse 38. Pilate comes back to the religious leaders, and he says to them at the end of verse 38, I find no guilt in him. He says in verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. This was part of his kind of pacifying the people, being a good governor. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We all work together so Caesar doesn't, you know, take me away as being ruler and then uh, come and put somebody else in place. So he says, I I have this custom. I release one man at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And Barabbas was much more than just a robber. Let me give you a a little bio on him. Here are words and descriptions that we read of Barabbas from the gospel accounts of this encounter before Pilate uh, and and with Jesus. First, he was a robber. You just saw that John called him a robber, uh, stealing, taking from other persons. Matthew identifies Barabbas and calls him a notorious prisoner meaning his reputation was well known. People knew what Barabbas had done. It wasn't a good reputation, but they knew his crime, his offenses, uh, and they knew why he was in prison. So he's called a notorious prisoner. Mark paints a very colorful picture of Barabbas that Luke, in his gospel account, echoes. 
Mark writes and says he was among the rebels. A rebel, one who rebels, revolts. He was among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now, what's an insurrection? It's an uprising. It's a revolt, a revolution against the government. So did you catch that? The religious leaders threaten Pilate by saying, we'll tell Caesar that you let go a rebel who might cause an insurrection, an uprising, or a revolution. But then who did they ask for Pilate to release instead of Jesus? They asked for a rebellious, murderous, thieving, revolutionary who led an insurrection, a revolution, a revolt against the government who was in prison. Do you see the irony, or should I say the hypocrisy in that? The very thing they threatened to tell Caesar about Pilate is what they actually asked for. This Jesus might cause a revolt. And Pilate says, who do you want me to set free? And they say, oh, give us the guy who did already lead a revolt and killed people in the process. It's stunning, is it not, that this contrast and, and the level of sinfulness these men will go to to have Jesus killed. Well, in Acts chapter 3, Peter was preaching to the crowd at Pentecost, and he reminded them of what happened when Pilate stood Jesus and Barabbas before the people. He said, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. So that's another uh, trait, identifying Mark uh, of Barabbas. He had killed people as part of his revolution and his revolt against the government. He said, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So Peter was basically saying to them, you're guilty of murder. You killed the Son of God just as Barabbas, uh, the murderer that you had set free. So that's what we know for certain about Barabbas. We, we see those things in Scripture. Well, let me give you two other pieces of information that aren't certain but could be possibilities uh, based on uh, what we see in, in, in Scripture. Some of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew and a couple of uh, non-biblical writings referencing back to that called Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Yahweh will save. And it was a relatively common name in ancient times. That's why generally you saw another name attached to the name Jesus. For instance, the Jesus that we refer to in Scripture uh, that we follow as our Savior is referred to often as Jesus of Nazareth, identifying that hometown. So you understood, you know, what the, which one they were speaking of. Or he was referenced as Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ, that identifier of Messiah, anointed one who came. So if this title is accurate, again, and it's a possibility, it's in some biblical manuscripts, think about Pilate setting before the people and saying, you have a choice to make today. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus Barabbas, or do you want Jesus Christ? Do you want Yahweh will save Barabbas, or Yahweh will save the Christ? Which choice, which, which offer of salvation do you as a crowd 
want to make today? As a crowd, what's to your benefit? What's to your desire in your own heart, in your own life? Just think about that contrast, that, that choice that may have been set before the people. Secondly, the word Barabbas is a combination of two Hebrew words, Bar, uh, which means son of, and Abba, which means father. So Barabbas means son of the father, which could mean he was the son of a priest because a priest was often referred to with the term father from a position of leadership or spiritual authority in a person's life. So think about the son of a father, possibly a spiritual religious father, uh, who had a son that was guilty of leading a rebellion, guilty of murder, guilty of robbery, being let go. The son of a religious leader with that rap sheet being let go compared to the perfect, sinless, spotless son of the father who was sent to death row and executed. Isn't that amazing contrast when you look at these two men and how their lives came to a single point, a point of decision for Pilate, for the crowd that was there that day? A choice, a decision. Who would they choose? Who did they choose? But for us today, who will we choose as we think about these men? Well, I want to talk about finding you in the resurrection for the next few minutes. Where do you think we fit in this picture? When we look at these characters, this situation, this encounter, where are we in this story, in this passage? Well, we're Barabbas. We are the ones who are guilty, are we not? We're guilty of sin uh, and disobedience before God. And your rap sheet may not include murder and theft and, and leading a revolution against the government. Or it might, I don't know, you know. Uh, Yours may not be quote-unquote as bad, or it may be quote-unquote worse. I don't know as we think about, you know, ranking our sin. But God sees no distinction uh, between our sin. But we understand that we're guilty. We, We have violated. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're guilty in our sins and our trespasses. And so we experience that guilt. But, you know, it's also likely, it's very common in the human experience that we sometimes carry around a false guilt. And I don't mean to say that your guilt isn't real. I'm just saying sometimes we take on guilt that's really not our guilt to take on. It's, it, it's very common uh, that uh, individuals who are uh, victims of, of sexual abuse harbor some guilt in their hearts and in their spirits and they carry in their psyche their entire lives that they in some way brought that upon themselves. In talking with adults uh, whose parents divorced even when they were children, we're talking children very young ages, preschool age, elementary age, those children uh, carry a sense of guilt that in some way or another it was their fault as a child, that they did something that caused their mother and their father to divorce, even though they were a child and their parents were the adults who were making those decisions, yet they carry that guilt uh, all of their lives. You know, maybe we carry guilt that we weren't good enough to receive our parents' love because we never felt like they, they expressed how, how proud they were of us. They never told us that they, love, that they loved us or they, they, they were proud of the accomplishments and things that we did. And so we carry this constant noise in our mind, this guilt that says, if I can just do more, if I can just get to this level of, of financial uh, stability or I can just accomplish this at work or if I can just do this, then mom and dad or whoever this individual is that they're trying to, to seek their approval, then they will 
will be proud of me. And if they fail and if they fall short, these waves of guilt come over them. Of, I'm just not good enough. And so we experience guilt. We understand this idea of guilt, whether it's true or false guilt. But what I want you to do is I want us to meet these people connected to Jesus' resurrection and the events leading up to his resurrection. And I want to see how their life was changed because of their encounter with Christ. So think about it. Barabbas was guilty, but because of his encounter with Christ, what was he after that encounter? He was free. He was a free man. He was drugged from the prison cell, set before Pilate, set before the people. He was released. He was given his freedom. I want you to listen to me. Jesus Christ came and he died as your substitute. He took your place so that you could be set free from the guilt and the shame and the penalties of your sins. Jesus became Barabbas' substitute and he died to become your substitute spiritually, to set you free from the weight and the burden and the penalty of sin in your life. Listen to Jesus' own words about this. He said, if you abide in my word, in John chapter 8, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And later in that chapter, he says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Meaning that the Son of the King has the authority to act on his Father's behalf. And Jesus came to say, I set you free from the penalty, from the punishment that your sins deserved. King David was a man who knew about being guilty and then experiencing freedom from the, the sin and the guilt that came with his sins. David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. Yet David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then had a man killed. He was a murderer to cover up his sin. And he talks about the weight and the guilt of that. David said, my body ached. My body wasted away as he carried around that guilt. But, but it, was, it was brought to light and he confessed he was forgiven of that sin. He was made new. He was restored in his relationship with God. And he reminds us that when we confess our sins to God, we are forgiven of those sins through Jesus' death as our substitute, just as Jesus became Barabbas' substitute. And David wrote these words about this experience of being forgiven and cleansed and our sins taken away. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, which is a, a word the Bible uses for sin. So far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin from us. Now let me ask you a question. When you start traveling east, when do you get west? You never do. I mean, we can travel around the world. I mean, we think of it in concept of the world. We can travel east. You can travel around the world. You'll get back to where you started from, but are you west? No, you're still traveling east. The idea is that God takes our sin, he, he forgives them through Christ, and He removes them, He casts them away, and they're gone. The Bible says that God remembers our sins no more. Here's the awesome thing about God. God is perfect, and what God does, He does perfectly. So when God forgets, 
he forgets perfectly, doesn't he? He remembers our sin no more. Now, we don't forget perfectly, do we? We remember. Not only do we remember, we have an enemy who the Bible calls an accuser who wants us to remember. In Micah chapter 7, uh, he gives a picture that sparked a term not found in Scripture, but it's rooted in, the, in this image. Micah writes and says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. That, that word iniquities is for sin. So God will, will tread our iniquities underfoot. Basically, God takes and he smushes them in the ground. Uh, he, he, he stamps them down. That, that's our sin. He's doing away with it. And he says this, You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You ever heard the term the sea of forgetfulness? Like I said, that phrase, sea of forgetfulness, isn't in Scripture, but it's tied to this picture in Micah seven nineteen that God takes and He casts our sin into the ocean, and they sink to the bottom to never be remembered anymore. I love how one person uh, kind of built on this. They said, God takes and He casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and then He puts up a no fishing sign. Because he's not going to drudge them up. He's not going to remember. And then God will, will move in our lives and we'll say, well, God, I can't do this because you remember what I did. You know this. And God's like, whoa, stop, stop. Time out. Did, did you confess that? Were you forgiven of it? Well, yes. Then I don't remember it. I forgot it and I forgot it perfectly. Now, again, Satan wants to go fishing there. He wants to do that often. But we claim that forgiveness, that cleansing through Jesus Christ. And we need to learn to forgive ourselves as well. Experience that. And the Apostle Paul writes, and the Apostle Paul was another guy. You think about experiencing the freedom from guilt. What was his life before his encounter with the resurrected Christ? He, he killed Christians. He persecuted and murdered believers, drug them into the streets, and had them executed on the spot for professing Christ. But the Apostle Paul met the resurrected Jesus. He changed his life and said, I've got a new name. I've got a new plan for you. You're going to go and share the good news of who I am and what I've been able to do in your life. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation because Jesus became our substitute. He set us free from the penalty of sin and death, just as he set Barabbas free from his physical death sentence. For his guilt. I came across in my study a story that's attributed to Napoleon. I, I wasn't able to verify its uh, historicity as to whether or not it, it, it actually took place, but I wanted to share it this morning because it, it's just such a, a good picture of this uh, Jesus becoming our substitute. Uh, but in, in the, the, the French War, when they were fighting the British, uh, Napoleon and his uh, officers, they would recruit persons for the army by going to their house and saying, hey, you're in the army now, you know, come and join us. And so they came to this one man's house, and they said, hey, you're in the army, come with us. And the man said, I can't, I've already been shot and killed. And they looked at him and went, yeah, sure, you've been shot and killed. He said, no, check your records. And so they went back, they checked their records, and sure enough, this man, his name, uh, his family name, his city, uh, was in their records as a man who had served in the army and who had been killed in the line of duty. Well, obviously they're puzzled, and this man told them that uh, it was apparent uh, as they came through on a prior recruiting trip that he was going to be uh, taken away to serve in the army. And so a neighbor had came and said, you know what, you have a family, you have a wife, you have children, I'm single, 
when they show up tomorrow, I'm going to go under your name. And I'm going to serve in the army as you. Well, that man went away and he was killed in service to his nation. And so this made its way all the way to Napoleon. And he declared that the nation had no legal claim to that man, that he was set free because a substitute had died in his place. You know, the crowd was given a choice to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. And they chose Barabbas. And I pose to you this morning, which will you choose? You know, if we choose the ways of the world and popularity and acceptance and, and we choose that, that we're going to work these, this out for ourselves and we're going to take care of the issues in our life, if we make that decision uh, for the ways and the things of the world, the Bible says that we remain in our guilt. We remain in our sins. But if we choose Jesus our sins are forgiven because Jesus died in our place as our substitute and paid the penalty for our sins. So not only are you free from that guilt and that penalty of sins, Jesus promised that his experience would be your experience. And you say, okay, my experience, Jesus' experience would be my experience. Well, what experience are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that you will die. You go, wow, great, sign me up. You know, that, that, that's what Jesus said, though. You know, as we come to April 1st, you know, we're reminded in this month that there's two things that are certain, right? Death and taxes. All right, you got two weeks. You got, you know, 14 days now to, to get those in. We're reminded that we're going to die. Jesus died. He said, you're going to have that experience. Death. The last stat that I read said that 100% of people will die. You may see something counter, but that's the last one that I read on it. We're going to die. Jesus died, but it doesn't stop there. What happened three days after Jesus' death? He resurrected from the dead. And Jesus' promise is that those who believe in him and receive him for salvation, even though we will die, yet we shall live in him, through him, for eternity. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. We'd like to believe that, that he understood this gift of freedom he had received, that he believed in Jesus, and he went around telling people, I'm the one that Jesus set free. Jesus died. He, he stepped in. He took my place. He took my penalty, and you need to receive that as well. We'd like to believe that, but we don't know if it happened. He may have gone into hiding, moved to the other, uh, you know, the outer uh, reaches of the region, and never spoke to another person. We don't know what happened to him. And I think maybe God designed it that way so we would think seriously about our salvation in Christ. That we would grapple uh, with the questions, what am I doing with the gift of salvation? What am I doing with the freedom that God has given me? Am I using it to share Christ with others? Uh, is it an a influencer and a motivator in my life to depend upon God and to, to, to live my life in such a way as to bring Him glory and honor and praise? Am I using my freedom in Christ to love him with my heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself? How am I using the freedom that I have been given? You know, you may be the next Billy Graham that will see tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ. 
You may be another Lottie Moon, a, a four-foot-two-inch dynamo who, who loved the Chinese people so much that she started an a international missions offering that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars for over a hundred years to put missionary personnel on the field to share the good news of Christ. We don't know how God may use us as we live our hearts or as we live our lives before Him making the most of the freedom in Christ that we have been given. But you know what? You may not be famous at all. There's a great likelihood that you won't be famous. But you know what? God gives fame to some, but God calls us all to be a light and a witness and an ambassador for Him, sharing the good news of Christ, using the resources and the talents and the freedom that He's given us to tell others that he has set us free and that he desires to set them free as well. You see, our aim isn't fame. Our aim isn't accolades. Our aim is to hear God say one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. We don't know what Barabbas did with his freedom. My question is, what are you doing? What will you do with your freedom in Christ? And if you're here and you've never received that freedom in Christ, that freedom from guilt, that freedom from the penalty of your sins, then our pastors will be available in just a moment. And we would love to talk with you about giving your life to Christ so that you can be set free from your sins and the guilt that you are going to stand before God and give account for unless you're forgiven in Jesus Christ. But believer, I ask you this morning, what are you doing with the freedom that you've been given? You see, Barabbas disappeared from the pages of history. We don't know what he did with his freedom, but remember this. Your history in Christ is still being written. Your history in Christ is still being written. What will people say about you, about your walk, about your witness, about your work, and about your testimony Jesus Christ I implore you today to make the most of the freedom that you've been given in Christ for his glory for his honor for his praise because he truly is worthy of our glory and our praise and all of the honor that we can give him because he died in our place to take away our guilt and to set us free from our sins let's pray Father, we pause in this moment.